Today's healthcare can be confusing, frustrating, and at times downright scary. Here to help with clearing up the confusion, putting an end to the frustration, and making it a lot less scary. Here from Los Angeles are your hosts, Eric and Roy, on the Informed Patient Radio Show. Hello and welcome back into the Informed Patient Radio Show. Our guest today is Terry, and she's calling in from Colorado. Uh, she's on the phone presently. Terry, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. I understand you've been a, a registered nurse working in the intensive care unit for several years now. Correct. Yeah, about almost 17 years. Wow. Okay, well, that's a long time. It's obviously, you know your way around the intensive care unit and, and what, what goes on there after that many years. Well, well actually, about, probably about 12 or 13 in the ICU, but yeah, that's long a, enough. Yeah, that's, that's still a long time. So um, what, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, like why you became interested in uh, uh, an RN and, and actually maybe working in the intensive care unit versus a uh, uh, different part of the hospital or a different uh, area of medicine? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, I'll try to give you the short of it. Okay. <laughs> uh, my whole family, basically, my mom and my dad were both medical. My mom was a nurse. My dad was a paramedic. So I grew up around it, and they never forced me into it, but it was just something that I always enjoyed being around. I would go to work with my mom. That was before HIPAA. <laughs> I was allowed to go in and, and help out with, help, help out the docs and things like that. And So, yeah, it was just always interesting to me. I never thought of doing anything else. It was just always there. So, yeah, it was just natural for me to, to want to be a nurse. So, And as far as getting into the ICU, I actually started my way out, up from medical. I started out on the medical floor for the first year, and that's just general cross-the-board patients, you know, nothing serious. And then I moved up from there to, well, what we, we call today is PCU. And what, is, then, what, is, and what, is, what does PCU stand P for? Well, where I'm at now is PCU. It's called progressive care. I see. And basically, it's the step before you go to ICU. Okay. Um, so you're you're not quite medical, but you're not quite sick enough to go to the ICU yet. So I did that for a few years, and uh, some doctors took notice of me that worked a uh, cardiothoracic surgery group. They took notice of, of my working in the hospital, and they asked me to come work for them, rounding on their ICU patients that they performed heart surgery on. And uh, although I didn't have the experience, they still wanted me to come in and, and help out, and I did. And the more I helped out, the more I realized that I needed to know more and that it gave me the desire to get back into the hospital and train for ICU. Mm -hmm. And so then I, I did that. So they were very happy to see me promote and learn and progress. So it wasn't it wasn't a bad thing for me to leave them. They were actually happy for me to do that. So then and so I've been, I was only out of the hospital for seven months, and then I got back into I've into it with ICU, and I've been in it ever since. So, hi, uh, Terry. This is Eric. Um, got a question regarding like to uh, back with like when I was a nurse too. It, the it was customary for a nurse uh, right out of school to start at med surge, and then you know maybe go from med surge to telemetry, and then the PCU, and then up to the ICU or surgery or OR. But today I noticed, and maybe you can speak a little bit more on this and why if there is a reason for it, but I know that uh, some of the nurses are now coming out of, especially here in California, they're coming out of school and sometimes bypassing that and going right into the ICU and the emergency rooms and stuff like that. Can you can you talk uh, a little bit on that subject and give us what your experience has been and if you think it's a positive thing or a negative thing? Sure. Well, um, it can be both. For me, um, I had worked in the hotel business 
all the way through nursing school. So I didn't have a clue about, I mean, other than, you know, being in the hospital every now and then watching my mom's and, you know, and stuff work, um, I didn't have a clue about what went on in the hospital. So I really needed that basic foundational um, education on the med surge floor of right. how to organize and, you know, just seeing patients in general and how to organize myself and my work and just getting the basic foundations of IVs and things like that. Some people have been EMTs or, you know, CNAs, and they understand patient care to start with. I didn't have that. Um, but to go straight from school to ICU, I think for any nursing student is quite ambitious. And I, I, honestly, I, I don't think it, it serves either of them. I don't think it's fair to either the, the nurse the new nurse or the patient, you know, and, and we have some, we have nurses that do it. I just, I think you have to be a very special type of person to be able to do that. A very, a very strong go-getter. But then again, you know, you get, like I said, you get patients or you get uh, new nurses who've been EMTs. So they understand a whole lot of this stuff already. So, I mean, it just really depends on the person, but I would, you know, very much recommend starting out on medical if you have no experience. Um, but it's for those who have experience and feel that they can, you know, they can handle the load. And, you know, because there's a lot of things that you know in, that you have to learn in ICU, like, you know, drips, you know, intravenous drips that can really affect blood pressure, that if you don't have any practice with them and you don't know how it's going to affect the patient, you've never had any practice with it, it takes time to learn. And trying to learn that on top of learning your basic skills, right. um, it can be a lot. So, yeah, it, it it just really depends on the person. Like, I mean, I, I'm i training somebody who, who doesn't have any experience, and um, it's challenging for her, but she's a go-getter. So she she's very eager to learn, and she's on top of things. You have to have that kind of personality. Right, um, and you touched on a point, training. Um, is there a orientation or training program that, regardless of what their background is, when they come into the ICU, do, do they you just kind of say, okay, those two are your patients, have at it, or do you do? Is there some uh, period of time where they're kind of uh, they go with a preceptor or something? Yeah, like uh, yeah, at our facility, they'll go with a preceptor. See, our facility doesn't have the high intensity ICU patients. I mean, as say. Uh, a heart center would, a hospital with um, a heart program where they do open okay. heart surgery right. and big major traumas. We don't have that. So they won't get as intense a training as they would at some other places, but they will always be with a preceptor. So at our facility, they'll train at our our hospital and one of our sister hospitals, which does hearts. So they'll get some, kind of some basic stuff, ventilators, IV drips, you know, cardiac catheterization patients, you know, some, you know, to- what we would consider pretty simple, um, right. and then with us for four weeks, and then they'll go over to the intense uh, hospital and see some more uh, involved things with a preceptor there for four weeks. Depending on the nurse, you know, they may or may not extend their orientation depending on how they're doing and how comfortable they feel. So, okay. yeah, it just... Uh, varies a lot. Okay, so they're not thrown to the wolves and they're they're brought up to a certain standard that is uh, acceptable to uh, like the, your hospital's policy. Right, right. And they have a checkoff list of skills that they have to right, have, okay. you know, signed off by their preceptor, yeah. Okay, thank you. Sounds sounds pretty intense, Terry. I was going to ask you also about um the ratio, you know, as far as like the how many patients that nurses are expected to to take care of in the ICU versus like a med surge floor. And does that change according to how intense a patient is and that kind of thing? Can you highlight that a little? Yes, it does change. Generally, in our unit, it's two ICU patients for one nurse. 
However, if they are of a particular type of ICU patient, what we call a one-to-one, maybe, you know, they're on a balloon pump, which is a device that basically it's a pump that it's inserted, you know, like in the in the cath lab, it basically keeps the heart pumping, and it's a very important. I'm trying to speak in very <laughs> layman's terms. Oh, that's I appreciate um, that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it keeps the heart pumping basically, and that is a one-to-one consideration. And then also a patient who's a new cardiac arrest, we do what's called a hypothermia protocol, and we cool them down to 32 degrees for 24 hours. And that patient is also a one-to-one until they are fully rewarmed, um, just because of all the changes that are that's going on with them that have to be monitored and blood tests and stuff. So certain patients are one-to-one, so that would be one nurse to one patient. But generally, it's two ICU patients to a nurse. If there aren't enough ICU patients because we're a small unit, if there's, say, only one ICU patient and the rest are progressive care because we're a mixed unit, we have ICU and PCU, that nurse could possibly take one ICU patient and two PCU patients, depending on their, their, you know, what's the word? Acuity. (laughs) Okay. And uh, what's the general length of stay for uh, an ICU patient? I know it's going to be different according to each patient, and I'm sure that some of them have to be there for a month, maybe some only for a few days, but can you kind of touch on that a little for us? Yeah, it does. It varies a lot. Um, I think probably the longest I've seen somebody there has been maybe two months, and that was that was a few years ago. So generally anywhere from anywhere from maybe two days, depending on the severity, maybe two days to to a month. I mean, and the month is really stretching it. And the the, the ones that might only be there for one or two days, uh, we get a lot of patients who are diabetic ketoacidosis and they come in, their sugars are completely out of whack, but it doesn't take us long usually to get them back into back into order and then they downgrade very, very quickly. They get better and, and we can get them out of there a lot of times the next day. So. Oh, okay. That, that's good. And when you, when they leave your unit, do almost all of them go to the progressive care or do, do some of them actually go home out of the unit or do they go to a, a nursing home, med surge? Where, where do your patients uh, transition to? Yeah, they transitioned all over the place. I mean, generally, like the the DKA patients, diabetic ketoacidosis, they'll they'll usually go home because they're most of them are young. We see a lot of young people that just don't know how to manage their sugars, and or you know they just they have a habit of not doing it because they're young and living their lives. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I won't use the word non-compliant, but <laughs> well, we we know that exists that for, for sure. <laughs> challenges uh, in the hospital and in the unit there for, like, say, hospital-acquired infections like you hear a lot in the news about uh, MRSA or the VRE, and and, uh, how are those treated, and what are the situations of going back to a facility or home or or just even caring for a patient? Uh, Since since it's a one-on-one, you don't have to worry about putting them with uh, other patients there, but if they go to a med surge floor, sometimes there's, like, two patients to a room or something. Is that correct? No, well, in the ICU, no, actually, uh, no, all of our rooms are, um, are private rooms. I see. So, oh, okay. Yeah, so that's, even on, even out on the floor, they're all private rooms. The, I think the hardest part, cause a lot of people come in, we've been seeing a lot of C. diff, which, you know, is, you know, started in the stool and, you know, it's, it, it, in their, I try to put it nicely, in nursing homes, <laughs> sure. it, it, 
can kind of get around in nursing homes and then they bring that in or they they acquire or they they bring it in and then it you know gets around to the rest of our you know the rest of our patients but it hasn't it hasn't really come you know it hasn't been like an epidemic lately i think the biggest problem is getting family and visitors to adhere to the isolation rules because we're all gowned up and gloved, but they come in and touch everything and right. regardless of how many times we tell them to wash their hands or wear a gown or wear gloves or wear a mask, they they don't do it and, you know, you can't force them. You, and you really right. do. You walk, a fine, you walk such a fine line of, you know, being courteous and then having to really put your foot down and, you know, without getting every, everybody's feathers ruffled. And then even doctors come in and do it. Doctors oh, will come in and I've, touch the patient and leave. Yeah, I've seen that happen, I, uh, unfortunately. But, yeah, that happens, definitely. Yeah, yeah so the takeaway, the takeaway on that, I guess, for listeners and and uh, families that are going to visit their loved ones, that it is a very, very serious thing. Hospital-acquired infections is a is a big deal, and that uh, we certainly don't want them bringing home anything that could be acquired in the hospital to their loved ones at home, especially children. And you mentioned C. diff. Maybe for your listeners or for our listeners, you can t- kind of touch, and it's okay. They should. I think they should know. You know what? What is C diff, and what is the general treatment for it, and why do they really want to wash their hands? Right. Well, it's spread through fecal matter, but yeah. it, it's very it's very easy to get. You know, if it gets on, if the patient happens to, touch, I mean, the patient's going to touch themselves at some point. They'll touch their leg or touch something. Then they touch the bed rail. Then you come in, you touch the bed rail, yeah. and you spread. It's very easy to spread, and it's it's treated with antibiotics. And unfortunately, the only way to get the get it out is for them to uh, excrete it through their their feces. So right. whereas some people say, well, can you give them something for their diarrhea? We say, no, we can't. It needs to come out. Yeah. And so therefore, you have a very messy situation, which yeah. which can definitely so. So the big yeah. takeaway is. You go in there, you see your loved one. Make sure you wash your hands uh, thoroughly before you leave the room. Correct. Correct. <laughs> yeah, it'll it'll help. Uh, keep your family safe and your friends safe, and 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 say, I think I guess the same goes for. Do you guys uh, encourage the visitors also before they come in and, uh, and see their loved one stuff? Do you encourage them to wash their hands prior to that too, or is that not as uh, stressed as when they leave? Well, what we we have a saying it's called gel in and gel out. The okay. only problem with that, the only problem with that is the hand gel for C diff. Yeah. It, it is effective for C diff. So for C. diff, the only thing you can do is wash your hands. The, okay. the gel does anything for C. diff. Okay, got it. Good to know. Thank you. So, Terry, um, I know that a lot of times there's other uh, discharge issues for patients being able to go home too, and unfortunately, some patients get uh, too sick to go back to maybe the same environment that they were they were in, like if they were home or. Or maybe they could go home, but it's not going to be the same as what it was before. So do you see patients that uh, actually go on to, like, hospice services or anything in, in your unit? Oh, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, some of our patients, they do. They they will deteriorate to the point where hospice is, you know. It, it just depends on the family, too. It depends on the patient. It depends on the family. What kind of resources do they have at home to help care for their loved one? Does their loved one want to, you know, be at home when they pass? Do they want to just... You know, are they all agreed that, you know, does the patient want to go to hospice 
Um, it's just, it's really a, an individual thing. And we have, what's wonderful is we have a, a palliative care doctor who comes in when they see that the need might be there. Um, and not just for hospice. We have palliative care to help, you know, people who have uh, chronic illnesses, palliative will come in to see what they can do to help them through that their chronic illness as well, not just to help them on to hospice. Right. Um, but palliative care will, uh, will help facilitate that and help them to come to what is the best for, you know, first for the patient and then for the family as well. Just really depends on the, the patient's wishes and the family's wishes and, and what they're actually able to do because there might be somebody at home that can take care of them and if they can get a hospital bed into the home and get some, you know, get social services involved with, uh, you know, home health or home, excuse me, home hospice. Um, we do have a hospice facility. You know, our our third floor is a hospice floor. Oh, that's it, interesting. Yeah, so it just depends on on the patient's wishes and what they're able to actually coordinate with the family and and everybody. Okay. Yeah, I know a lot of people think that sometimes families or patients will think that a palliative care doctor means hospice doctor, but you're right. Like what you were saying, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're on hospice, right. but they but you can still obviously have palliative care, and that's that's part of hospice also. Anyway, what um, as far as uh, spiritual care, does that come? Let's say they're not on hospice, but do do pretty much all the hospitals do they have some kind of a program for uh, say a priest to be able to come in or some kind of a counselor for these patients and families also? Yeah, we have chaplains. In fact, as soon as a patient is admitted, you know, upon doing their admission assessment, one of the questions we ask them is, would you like a visit from the hospital chaplain? And that'll usually open up a conversation of their wishes and what they would and would not like. And so then we'll just go from there. And uh, so, you know, we can always check that box and put a little comment in there. We can do a communication. We have an or a communication order. We can just click on that order and it'll hit communication. We can communicate with somebody about the patient's wishes in that regard. Or we can talk to the family if there's family there, if the patient's, you know, or we'll, I mean, we'll call whoever the patient wants us to. If the patient's able to let us know, hey, I really want to get a hold of my pastor or, like, you know, we're totally open to whatever they want. So That's a good segue. You said uh, talking about their the family's wish or the patient's wishes. There is a, I know here in California, there's a big push uh, to have the conversation regarding advanced directives. Could you touch a little bit on being uh, an ICU nurse and when it comes to, since they're very tenuous anyway, and I'm sure a lot of times you see, you know, the good old-fashioned cardiac arrest um, or the patients that are on the ventilators and they're almost in a comatose state or in a comatose state. And what, A, what is an advanced directive? And B, the real importance of having a good advanced directive? Yeah, sure. Well, the advanced directive, it, it helps us. So if somebody has a terminal illness, and they already know ahead of time what they would and would not like us to do. You know, if their heart stops, do they want us to, to do chest compressions and shock them and, you know, do everything that it takes to bring them back? A lot of them are, will say no because they've been sick for so long and they're tired of being sick and they don't want extreme heroic measures used. So they'll generally uh, have an advanced directive that limits what we can do. We can do some things, but not everything. You know, like we can give them heart medications, but if their heart stops, they don't want us something on them. If they have a lung disease and for whatever reason they can't breathe on their own, do they want us to put a tube down their throat and connect them to a ventilator to help them breathe until they can do it again on their own? So it, it's helpful to know in those situations. A lot of people don't know until the moment comes. Generally, when they come in and they're admitted, they will, if there isn't an advanced directive that they have made us aware of, 
um, and they haven't made any wishes known to us, generally the doctor will ask them upon admission, and that will be part of their order set as soon as they're admitted. So we know as soon as they're admitted, whether they're a full code or a DNR, do not resuscitate. If there is no DNR order at all written by the doctor, we assume that they are a full code. But then sometimes the doctors get so busy that maybe it doesn't get entered when it should. And so when they come up to us, we will ask them again, because once they come up to the floor, we have to do their full admission, and and I always verify again with them while they're while they're awake and alert and coherent, you know, right. what, what are the wishes, because yeah. just to clarify, and okay. uh, yeah, because that's really important. So, so Terry, when, when somebody's in that situation, and let's say they, they don't have an advanced directive where, uh, like, they don't have a DNR, do not resuscitate, order in place, and... Can a family member, without being like the durable power of attorney, can can they make that decision for for the patient, or does that can can it just be the doctor writing the order? What what kind of uh, challenges do you face with that kind of thing? Um, if if the family member, it it really is individual. It depends if the family member, you know, if the patient's not able to speak for themselves. And the family member isn't really sure because generally they're not. If the patient's not coherent and the family member isn't sure, then the doctors are just going to continue to work on the patient and we'll end up, we'll just keep, you know, doing everything that we can day by day to take care of the patient until we see which way the patient is going. If we see that it's irreversible, they're not waking up, they're not responding, then they'll start moving from there. And a lot of times it ends up being the doctor that, that makes a lot of the decisions. If the family desperately wants to be the ones that make the decisions, sometimes they have to go through legal processes. It can just become very difficult. I've seen it happen where a couple was together for years and years and years, and he got very sick to the point where he wasn't able to communicate anymore, and she was not allowed to make decisions for him because they were not legally married, although they had been together forever, and she had to watch her poor loved one just go through terrible, terrible things and end up dying anyway. He, he went through, you know, a tracheotomy, a peg tube, uh, all these things that she knew he would not have wanted, but he was not able to verbalize, and legally they, the doctors didn't have a choice but to do everything because... Uh, she didn't have the legal right to to say so. So I, that's why it's very important uh, for people to have those advanced directives in place and to make sure that their family understands their wishes because we've also seen it where they've had advanced directives and once they're incapacitated, the family members will still try to go against it. Yeah, so, sure. Eric and I have both seen that too, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can so. you... Do you think you can also – there's been a couple things in the news lately, and, 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 and maybe that's uh, – you've had some experience in this. I know I have. Um, but there's the, the terms that I know have been kind of uh, – there's some misunderstanding, and I've seen some parties in the news or anything use it to their advantage of uh, people not understanding the difference between withholding care and withdrawing care. You know, I've seen them. You know, so uh, do you? Th- are you are you comfortable enough to kind of give our audience a, an idea of the difference between the two? Well, to me, withholding care sounds negligent. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, withholding care means that there's something that you could do that could change, you know, the patient's outcome for the better. So I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. You know what you're referring to in that regard as far as the media, but that's what I think of. Now, when I think of withdrawing care, it's somebody who has maybe either been declared legally dead, either, you know, brain dead or or their heart has stopped. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, and you're withdrawing, say, the ventilator support and, and that right. type of stuff, or they're or if they, you know, have a DNR and, or maybe they, they're on blood pressure medic, medicine that's keep, the only thing keeping them going is that blood pressure medicine and they say, right. that's it. I'm riddled with cancer. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm miserable. Just stop everything and let me go on my own. Yeah. Then yes, you withdraw that. You withdraw those artificial measures. It's withdraw, to me, that's withdrawing the artificial measures that right. the patient doesn't want so that nature can take over and, and they can die on their own terms. Right. Have you seen in a case also that, um, I know in personal experience, I've seen where the doctors, um, if they feel like, say, there's maybe there's an advanced or no advanced directive, but the physicians, uh, maybe even collectively the team feel that if they continue a certain treatment that it, A, won't really do anything or might even potentially harm the patient. Have you seen it where the doctors reserve the right to not go that direction because they have the, you know, do no harm, uh, credo? You know, you just see all sorts of different things. It's hard to say. Um, I think that, you know, the doctors are always trying to do what's best, what they feel is best for the patient. It doesn't always, right. you don't know until you know. Um, yeah. And so it's really hard to speak to it in, in that way. Okay. Um, they don't want to do harm. Right. And I believe the thing they're doing is, you know, to try to help the patient. Um, sometimes the nurses, they might disagree and think that the doctor needs to do something else. Right. But you know, ultimately, the family and the patient need to be involved as well. And I think that's a huge problem is that the families and the patients often are left out of these discussions because they feel that maybe they don't understand. Or mm-hmm. and, and I think that's a big piece that's missing, whereas maybe the doctor, would, you know, the whole all of the medical staff would have a better idea of, of which way to go if, if they truly collaborated more with the family and the and, you know, the patient. Not yeah. saying that they don't. It's. It's a very it's a very convoluted mess at times. <laughs> oh yeah, I can imagine. It's hard to speak, it's hard to speak generally. But yeah. I, you know, okay. I believe you know the doctors are trying to do no harm as well as the nurses, and sometimes right. you know it's just a matter of different opinions. Yeah. Okay. So, well, listen, Terry, we really appreciate all this great information. I think you've really opened the eyes to uh, to a lot of uh, great information here that uh, people will be interested in, and we really appreciate you being on the show today. So uh, thank oh, you very pleasure. much. Absolutely. You're welcome. Well, that's it for this episode. And again, we'd like to thank Terry. And we hope you tune in next time and we'll bring you more information that can help you and your loved ones deal more effectively with the healthcare system. And until then, thanks for listening to the Informed Patient Radio Show. You have been listening to the Informed Patient Radio Show with Eric and Roy. For more information, please visit us at informedpt.com. Tune in next time for more information regarding the healthcare system and how it affects all of us.